The Justice Department is leading a government-wide effort to set technology standards for the tools agencies use to manage a growing volume of Freedom of Information Act or FOIA requests. The upcoming business standards are meant to help agencies understand which commercial FOIA tools and services meet DOJ guidance and statutory requirements. DOJ's Office of Information Policy expects a draft version of the business standards to be available for public comment early this summer. For a closer look at what the business standards will mean for agencies, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with DOJ OIP Director Bobby Talabian. If you look at it historically, there's a little bit of up and downs between some years, but it's an obvious trend of increasing demand and FOIA requests. Just this last fiscal year, the government overall received a record high of over 900,000 FOIA requests. And I've always said now for like the past couple of years that we're inching closer to that million mark, which is great because we want people to use FOIA and you know we want the public to use this really important service and to inform them about their government and have meaningful public engagement. But of course, that also then puts a strain on FOIA professionals and our abilities to respond to large volumes of requests. The more and more agencies get requests, obviously, the more time it takes for intake and all the way through the review process and us to be able to respond. And so agencies need the tools to be able to scale up their intake and management of these requests. And we're hoping that with common business standards, agencies will have a baseline of requirements that they can use to identify the right tools. Industry can develop better tools for us to be able to be more responsive and respond to higher volumes of requests efficiently and effectively. So we're excited and we have great partners. Uh, as like I said, GSA, we're working as well as OGIS, but also a number of other agencies that are part of the CFO Council working group on the business standards. We're making some great progress. Okay, well, let's expound on that point a little bit more. Just to dig a little bit deeper here, how would these common standards improve FOIA processing and case, and case management? What ultimately is the value proposition for agencies in all of this? Yeah, so ultimately, I mean, our goal is to make sure that agencies and agency professionals have the tools they need to make sure that their FOIA programs run efficiently and effectively. Having an efficient case management system makes sure that the requests go through the process from intake to response to the requester smoothly. Also, these standards will ensure that statutory requirements are met and supported through the case management systems as well as OIP's guidance. And then another aspect of use of these case management systems is reporting, which can be a challenge. And the reporting comes in two ways. One is the statutory required reports. Uh, and so we want to make sure the requirements of the case management systems are able to capture the data that's needed for those reports and that we're able to extract that data for the annual FOIA report in a way that's accurate. And then also various other reports that we need to manage FOIA requests throughout the year. That functionality is essential for efficient workflows and managing and staying ahead of the uh, trends in the processing of requests. So I think the business standards are really going to help in that way as well. It's also going to alleviate the need for requesters when they go to procure or look for solutions to develop requirements in, in the first place. It provides them a good baseline. They don't have to reinvent the wheel and then they can focus on what are more unique to their needs. If there is any level of customization that they need or want to match their specific workflows, which can differ from agency to agency, their review structures and, and so forth. 
when we talk about all things FOIA processing, that's a pretty big bucket of things to unpack. And from what I understand, this coalition of DOJ, OIP, NARA, GSA, you guys are kind of taking this one bite at a time. In terms of those functional areas that everyone is focused on right now, what are some of those functional areas that are, I guess, front of mind as part of this? Yeah. So what we're working on right now, what the functional areas that we're considering and with that we worked with our working group on are FOIA management reporting and proactive disclosures, the FOIA request intake process, then the processing and response to the requester, fee estimation and processing, the administrative appeals, and then FOIA customer service. So those are the areas we're currently considering. Okay. And in terms of kind of the the timeline of what to expect here, I know this is an ongoing effort, but what is the kind of estimated timeline of when all these agencies that we're talking about here, this working group has an interim final version of these business standards? So we're looking at having a draft baseline version of the standards, the functions, activities, and business capabilities up for public comment on regulations.gov in early summer. So that's our plan. Then once we get that feedback, we then anticipate finalizing those in later in the calendar year, which will then allow us to move on through the next process of defining use cases and then the standard elements. That's our timeline plan for now. All right. Further along that process, once the interim final version's out, once the public comment period is over, how might agencies and the FOIA industry kind of use this to improve FOIA processing? So like I said, with our goals, it's going to help them by making sure they, well, one, know what's out there. It'll help them identify solutions, but then in acquiring solutions or developing solutions that they meet the standard baseline requirements of what is required by the statute, our guidance, and what is supportive of efficient and effective FOIA administration. It'll help reporting as well, which is also important, not just for public transparency, but also in managing FOIA workflows, just like any other industry. If you're not tracking progress, if you're not tracking work, it doesn't get done. And so giving FOIA managers the tools to be able to effectively adjust workflows and and make decisions to reduce backlogs and respond to requests as, as quickly as possible. To zoom out here a little bit, let's maybe talk a little bit about some of the common pain points around FOIA case management. You know, of course, the workload is getting larger and larger every year, but what are the sort of things that can hamper the productivity of FOIA officers as they're trying to go about this important work? One of the pain points is, and I think uh, we've done a lot of work in this area too with the Chief Warrants of Council, is just identifying what's out there. There's a range of solutions. Some are uh, off-the-shelf solutions that were made for FOIA, and some are solutions that agencies have adapted or created in-house based off of other you know, databases or things to meet their FOIA needs. It's a constantly evolving area. We had a, our next-gen showcase where we saw a lot of different forms of technology and vendors and solutions out there, all which could meet the different needs of agencies. So one of the challenges is just knowing what's out there. We're doing better with that. And I think the business standards is going to help with that. The other is the developing of requirements. So this will certainly help with that, with agencies kind of each developing their own requirements and and trying to procure or acquire a solution. We want to make sure agencies have a baseline of common requirements that they can look to make sure that those solutions they're looking at meet those, and then they can focus on what's more unique to them. And then reporting is another aspect that's really challenging, but making sure that solutions are able to capture the data we need, are able to provide it back to us in the way we need, 
has a tremendous impact on the agency's ability to manage their FOIA program. That was Bobby Talabian, director of the Justice Department's Office of Information Policy. You can find more of Jory Heckman's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, Customs and Border Protection ponders how worldwide trade affects the climate. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. There's the business climate, and then there's the environmental climate. Officials at Customs and Border Protection want to talk with industry about the impact of international trade on the latter, and they're organizing an event to share ideas. To find out more details, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke with CBP's Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade, Anne-Marie Highsmith. And this is a follow-on of an initiative now that's about a year old, where you're trying to assess the environmental impact of international trade. How's it going? What have you learned so far in the past few months? Things are going great. You know, there's a lot of energy and interest in the international trade community and also amongst our international partners and our participating government agency partners. So a lot of energy. The strategy has really helped us refine those conversations to focus on our four pillars. How do we incentivize green trade? How do we strengthen CBP's environmental enforcement posture? How do we accelerate green innovation? And how do we improve climate resilience and resource efficiency? So with those four pillars, our community is latching on, creating their own programs, their own ideas, and partnering with us to move the ball forward. We're really excited with the progress that we've made. And just maybe a quick restatement of the definition of what is green trade. I mean, as far as I know, we don't have electric cargo ships yet. No, we don't. But, you know, we do know that a significant, if not overwhelming portion of global carbon emissions is tied to international supply chains, both what comes here and how it gets here. And so focusing on those two points, how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the production of merchandise, and how do we move it more efficiently and effectively to also reduce carbon emissions? Those are our two focuses for green trade. And with respect to what is traded, you know, someone might be a distributor of lawnmowers in the United States, and the lawnmowers come from all over the country. I'm just making this one up. Some lawnmowers, you know, there are electric, and they finally work good, you know, as someone who played with these 30 years ago, they were terrible. Now they work well. But someone else could be importing plain old two-stroke gas lawnmowers, which are noisy and make a lot of smoke. What influence does CBP have over what it is that people are actually shipping in or shipping out? This is something that we're taking up with our international customs community to figure out for the first pillar of the strategy, incentivizing green trade. How can we encourage trade in those environmentally friendly goods? What's the reaction from industry in this country so far? You know, industry has been very enthusiastic. There are a lot of companies and industry sectors that are really leaning forward on this. Our steel and aluminum uh, manufacturers, their association has been working on this for a while to try and reduce their footprint, but also incentivize others to reduce their footprint. It strikes me that the data that CBP collects on inbound shipping, which you do for other purposes, could also be repurposed for getting a better understanding of what is coming 
into the country from an environmental standpoint. No, that's absolutely right. We do look a lot at the environmental impact of our own operations. This year, we launched the truck manifest modernization program. We call it TMM. That reduces the amount of time that trucks are dwelling at the southwest border, which has had a dramatic impact on greenhouse gas emissions in those communities. And we're partnering with members of the scientific community in order to um, actually have measurements. Baselining right now And then how can we measure the impact of changes that we're making both locally and globally? We're speaking with Anne-Marie Highsmith. She's Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at Customs and Border Protection. And you are now becoming a convener and industry groups are going to get together at a meeting that you're planning. Tell us what you have in mind. What's going to happen? So on July 11th at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office in Alexandria, Virginia, we're hosting the Green Trade Innovation and Incentives Forum in order to create an opportunity to work collaboratively across industry and government to help develop and incentivize trade practices that are contextually relevant, reduce climate risks, and harmonize approaches to really address our greatest challenges in greening trade. And who will be coming there? We have opened it to industry, to our participating government agencies, to academics who will also be in attendance, a broad, broad public engagement here. It's not only occurring in person at the PTO, but is also available virtually so folks can log in. And I was going to say, you know, you're the Office of Trade, but you're part of Homeland Security, whereas Patent and Trademark Office, of course, is commerce. And so I would think that there's a lot of commerce involvement even beyond the USPTO in this whole trade issue because we sort of have convergence of mission here somewhat between two departments. Right. You know, our Department of Commerce colleagues have been great partners with us in this area. Also, you know, our PTO partners in particular, they are looking for ways to encourage the development of new ideas and new technologies. Then they can, you know, protect American ingenuity in that regard. And I want to get back to the topic of the means of transport for goods. I mean, they come by, you know, big belly aircraft or they come by big ships both back and forth. And that industry, that end of the transportation industry, is the least able to adapt to some of the new technologies that we see in cars. And it could be decades. It may be never, for that matter, trucks. Because, you know, so a truck becomes electric, but now instead of weighing 10,000 pounds, it weighs 30,000 pounds. And you've got all kinds of other environmental bad effects, and maybe your net is actually worse. So what do you see ahead? What are the trends there? And what do you hear from that industry with respect to how they can get greener? Right. They're very aware of the challenges that they face, but they are taking a lot of responsibility for their role, just as we all are. Everyone needs to lean in to change the things that they can change in a positive way. And so our ocean partners, they are looking at ways to improve the efficiency of their movements. They've been participating in our Aqualanes program, which does, in fact, dramatically reduce emissions at our seaports. They're looking to improve the efficiency of booking 
of their um, vessels to reduce those emissions and also in, in the air environment, the same considerations. And you mentioned the uh, Aqualane program. You didn't borrow that from Jethro Tull by any chance. <laughs> no, no. But but if if we had, we'd be paying appropriate royalties. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you would be. And so what's your hope for the outcome, the deliverables from this convening that will take place in July? You know, creativity and innovation really thrive in proximity. And I am hoping that the outcome is an energizing of those two in this area. I'm hoping that our partners encourage each other and create sparks of ingenuity that will help move the entire ball down the field for us from a global perspective. I'm also hoping that encouragement comes out of this. Because when we look at global greenhouse gas emissions and we look at climate change from the broader perspective, it's easy to feel some sense of despair. I hope that hope comes out of it and encouragement that we all can do our part and cumulatively we can make a big impact. And just a final detail question, will someone say from an Amazon type of company be there or Amazon because I think of them as the biggest pipeline from China and Chinese goods into the United States. I do expect that members of our freight forwarding and express consignment community will be present. Anne-Marie Highsmith is Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at Customs and Border Protection, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the upcoming forum at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, what does the latest debt ceiling deal mean for federal agencies? But first, autonomous vehicles may soon be making their way to the front lines. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The self-driving vehicle is now a reachable asset for travelers in major American cities after a ton of research and testing. The Army, however, has its own need for the autonomous vehicle. To help procure the complicated technology, it turned to the Defense Innovation Unit as a facilitator with folks from the industry side that can help. We wanted to learn more about how that went, so I had the chance to speak with David Michelson, who is a project manager with DIU. So as part of what we're looking to do at the Defense Innovation Unit, we want to accelerate the adoption of commercial technology for the Department of Defense. And it's no secret that private industry has invested billions and billions of dollars into the autonomous vehicle space. And there's a lot of technology and some really innovative ideas out there that the department could benefit from. So as we were talking to a bunch of our DOD partners, we ended up making connections with the Robotic Combat Vehicle Office out of Detroit Arsenal. And we learned that they had a, a pretty compelling problem on the software side for their efforts and that we could help out and really open up the aperture of the vendors that could compete, get some new companies, some compelling non-traditional defense companies, uh, and some first-timers really that uh, haven't done business with the Department of Defense before to come in and say, hey, we have something that's compelling, unique, innovative, and we think that we could solve a big problem for the Army. So those conversations happened for quite a while as we strategized, thought about it. That's really where the match came in. And I think that uh, DIU's unique position in the ecosystem and connections to the commercial space were, were something that the Army was excited to leverage, and we're, we're proud to partner with them. 
Yeah, this is really DIU's bread and butter. And like you said, this is kind of what you all were <laughs> created for was helping to facilitate processes like this. So what was the steps that you all took and what role did you play in getting the Army in touch with these different companies? The process that we use is, is laid out pretty well on our website at DIU.mil. For anyone that's interested in taking a deeper dive into it, definitely go to DIU.mil. There's some great open solicitations on there right now. And it talks vendors through how to get into submitting an, uh, a solution brief for, for a different solicitation. So the commercial solutions opening is the process that we use for our other transactions authorities to be able to execute contracting in a competitive process for the DOD partner that we're working with. And that's the mechanism that we used with this. So we really took the variety of requirements that the Army had. We talked to their user representatives. We talked to the different stakeholders, and we worked hand-in-hand -hand with the project manager and the product managers and the Army for the robotic combat vehicle to say, what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve here? And we distilled that down into what we call an area of interest statement. And that's what vendors see when you go on diu.mil. When you see a work with us button and it has open solicitations, that's what you see. That's what everyone takes a look at. And it describes at a high level what the problem is. What we want to do is demilitarize the language that goes out to industry to make it practical, to make it so that we can see innovative solutions. We don't want to prescribe a solution necessarily. We want to describe what the problem is and see what's out there that could solve it. And the barrier to entry for companies to submit is pretty low. It's either a five-page uh, five white paper or 15 slides. That's all they have to do. They do have to answer the questions in the solicitation. They do have to address it. Like I said, that's all explained pretty well at DIU.mil. But that gives a, a wide variety of vendors the chance to, to take a dip into the ecosystem and to see if uh, they have something that's really compelling for the government. And so that was the process that we worked on with them. I think it was about a, almost a year ago now that we launched this initial uh, effort online. And so you received a, a healthy amount of responses and got it down to five vendors. Um, what can you tell me about the decision-making process and how did you aid Army officials in that step? It's a competitive process and there's a lot of diligence that goes into that. And the process uh, goes through several phases where we hear very detailed proposals. We, we have conversations with the vendors and we really take a look at the breadth of their solution compared to the problem statement that the government's trying to, to get after. So once we get through all of that and we collaborate with all of the different stakeholders and the vendors are part of that, they're, they're included. Because again, we're really trying to leverage their commercial capabilities and who knows it best, they do. And so we wanna make sure that we're, we're doing something that's achievable and that we've got everyone lined up for success. So that's really where it comes in. We bring in a lot of expertise, not just from inside DIU, but from the rest of the government and the army to really help us figure out exactly what we want. And we try to remain as flexible as we can so that we can learn along the way and address those learnings and, and make improvements uh, every step and every phase of a project's life cycle. All right. I think we've uh, healthily satisfied the contracting part of this that we, we had to get through. Now <laughs> yeah. let's talk some cool tech stuff. So sure. <laughs> how, how far along uh, really is this technology? I mean, I was just reading yesterday about how, you know, autonomous vehicles are being used right now in uh, West Coast cities and not really a lot of people are talking about it. So what is the Army looking to do to utilize unmanned vehicles? There's a whole pipeline of technologies that go into that. So if you go talk to any of the companies that are putting vehicles on roadways right now, 
like one of the the partners that we work with on this effort, Kodiak Robotics, who has semi-trucks on the highways in Texas and other states in the South right now. You'll hear about how it goes from an idea through the engineering process, through modeling and simulations, which we have another partner working on, Applied Intuition, and then how we refine the models to make all of that work and exist cohesively so that, again, the Army could take a look at this and verify that, hey, this is achieving the standards that we need. We feel comfortable with the tech that we have. And so we're still fairly early in building that full pipeline out for the Army, but we've had demonstrations We've made a couple posts online where you can see we've had uh, several of our vendors, in addition to the ones I've mentioned, roboticsresearch.ai, NAIA Systems as well, come out and demonstrate their technology in military environments so that we can get a better grasp of where they're at. And I'm super optimistic. I think there's a ton of utility in this. And there's a lot of different use cases from logistics to reconnaissance that the Army can really benefit from and really the whole DOD combined. It's what we're really trying to look at is is those hard things, the dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks that people, that troops are doing now in vehicles, and how can we get them out of those vehicles so they can do things that are more complex and harder for a machine to do that you really need a person to go do. But if you're having something move logistics from point A to point B, commercial vendors are doing that right now, and they're doing it, and they're scaling, uh, and it's really exciting to see that translate into a military environment. We're speaking with David Michelson. He's a project manager with the Defense Innovation Unit. And so what specialities, you mentioned a little bit about what the use cases are as the Army's trying to use unmanned vehicles. Obviously, you put an unmanned vehicle on a highway in the U.S., safety is of the utmost concern. But I'm just curious about what stipulations the Army has for their needs. If you're sending an unmanned vehicle across a battlefield or something or if a conflict area, what are the special specialities required that may not be needed <laughs> on the home front? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And the way I personally like to think of it is that when an autonomous vehicle company puts their vehicle on the interstate in the United States, they don't want to cause an accident either. Safety is paramount. And it's honestly, I think, a more congested and just as unpredictable environment as we would uh, you would see in a military operation. There's still clutter. There's still you know, people cutting vehicles off or doing wild things that we've all seen on the highway. And, and the machines have to be able to, to react to that and respond to it. I think one of the interesting things that we're looking at as we scale this is the ability to do what we call teleoperations or remotely operate the vehicle when there's something that comes up that we just haven't seen before. And that's common. That happens all the time for all the vehicles, Eric, that you're mentioning in West Coast cities and other places throughout the United States, like every every day, I'm sure these developers are seeing things that they didn't think of. And so they build to it and they react to it and they adjust their models and, and go redeploy their systems to see if they learn appropriately. And, and we're doing the same thing in this project. And we're really trying to lean on that ability for a human to come in on the loop to adjust for, for an obstacle or something that they hadn't encountered before. That helps us really kind of scale this and make it quicker for adoption, I think, and safety. As someone who has gotten a quick snapshot of this technology, and I'm going to ask you to put your fortune teller hat on and tell me, you know, are we (laughs) going to see convoys of unmanned army vehicles going into conflict zones? Or, uh, you know, is this just going to stay as sort of a logistical aspect for the time being? I think so. I think there's definitely a desire to see those convoys and to really build this at scale so that you can accelerate operations, increase efficiency, uh, and really give commanders in the military a lot more flexibility 
so that they can use their people again for more complex tasks and things that are aren't dull, dirty, or dangerous. They can go do other things. So I think that that will have a huge impact. I I, I know. I can't speak to who, but I know that there are customers out there in the department that really want this capability and we're really hoping to uh, to accelerate that adoption. This industry is doing the same thing. They see all of the upside to this technology. And uh, I think with uh, the work we're doing here at DIU and the Army, we can accelerate that into the Department of Defense. Nobody likes driving, especially through a battlefield. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yep. I've, I've been there. I spent 14 years in the Army, spent plenty of time on, on highways and roads in Iraq and Afghanistan. So if we can pull troops out of seats and increase their safety, get them away from, again, dull tasks, I think this is a, a huge win. And I think there's a, a huge opportunity here for the department to leverage commercial industry and the massive amount of investment. And it's not just the the investment, but it's also the data that's been collected. There's nothing like operating in the real world, and commercial industry has been doing this through several pilot programs across the country, and they've collected tremendous amounts of data. And that's only a positive that the department can benefit from in partnerships like these. David Michelson is a project manager with the Defense Innovation Unit. You can find this interview along with the website David mentioned at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, what does the latest debt ceiling deal mean for federal agencies? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Debt ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling. It's all you've heard from members of Congress and those who cover it. Now that all parties involved have come to an agreement to raise it, what does it mean for federal agency budgets? To find out, I got the chance to talk with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Well, it's a little bit different because it does combine the spending cuts along with raising the debt ceiling. So as far as legislation goes, it's fairly straightforward. This is fairly short compared to a lot of other legislation that comes through. So, of course, the big headlines are that it extends the debt ceiling into 2025. It effectively freezes discretionary spending in the coming year and then limits growth to 1% the following year. It's estimated that it could save $1.5 trillion over the next decade. Now, getting into some of the more nitty-gritty issues. One of them, of course, affecting federal workers is the federal agency that will be most affected by the debt ceiling legislation is the IRS. Lawmakers agreed that $10 billion can be repurposed from the agency in each of the next two fiscal years for a total of $20 billion. Now, that's out of the $80 billion that Congress approved last year, and Republicans have been criticizing it ever since, charging that agents will be coming after average American taxpayers, Democrats rejecting that. Now, more immediately, it rescinds $1.4 billion that was approved last year. And there's some disagreement about exactly how this will affect enforcement, as well as plans by the agency to improve customer service and upgrade its computer systems. Treasury officials have said plans to develop an online free file tax return system, which is now being tested as a pilot. For instance, that will not be affected by the cuts. Now, a Congressional Budget Office report says with less funding for enforcement, the deficit it could actually increase. This is something that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has disputed. But nonetheless, IRS enforcement staff has shrunk by about one third over the past decade or so. So you can bet members of Congress from both parties will be closely monitoring how this part of the legislation is carried out. Always easy to go after one of the least popular agencies for the politicians. What did members of the GOP feel that they or, or what were they upset that they didn't get as part of this deal? 
One of the biggest things is that many Republicans, particularly in the Senate, feel that this did not do enough to shore up defense spending. Democrats on the other side charged that this was a manufactured crisis over the debt ceiling to get a result that Republicans couldn't get during the regular appropriations process. But as this moves forward, this is going to be an interesting thing to watch. It will affect appropriations, and the legislation includes a provision for an across-the-board 1% haircut on spending if all 12 of the appropriations bills are not completed on time for the start of the fiscal year on October 1st. And as you well know, uh, this rarely happens. Now, the House usually does a better job of getting the appropriations bills out of committee and across the finish line. The Senate, over the last several years and decades, really, has just not been able to get it done. And that's often why it all ends up in this big omnibus bill at the end of the year. And that's something that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said he wants to avoid. Now, what that 1% haircut also includes is defense and veterans affairs programs. And that's one of the things that many Republicans are really upset about. There was a lot of talk about this during the final debate in the Senate related to this. I think what is going to happen, though, there are some backroom handshake deals and a variety of other things that are going to happen involving emergency funding for defense. And that if there is a need and there is a definitely a will in the Senate to get more money for defense, whether it's for the Pentagon or whether it's for things like assisting Ukraine, they are going to come up with that money. But that was definitely a sore point for Republican senators. Yeah. House Speaker McCarthy and many Republican members of Congress have used this <laughs> to look at spending overall to try and get some cuts going in that direction. McCarthy even wants to establish a commission to look at spending. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Right. He has been a little bit vague on the this bipartisan commission that he wants, but essentially it would look at all parts of the federal budget for areas that could be cut or where spending could change. And as you know, there's a long history of these type of panels going back to Simpson Bowles, the Gang of Six and others. I've talked about this with Virginia Senator Mark Warner, who likes the idea. He just feels that it's unfortunate that often what happens is these commissions get charged with making recommendations and then they're ignored by Congress. Now, presumably they would look at Social Security and Medicare, which are, of course, two of the largest drivers of federal costs. But again, it really remains to be seen where this will go. Will these just be continually good ideas that are ways that the government can actually reduce spending and figure out ways that uh, Social Security and Medicare can be shored up in the coming years? Or will Congress say, well, thanks, but no thanks. We appreciate the recommendations, but we're going to do what we want to do because it's politically expedient. Not to mention members of budget committees and ways and means are probably saying, well, what do you think we're doing over here? <laughs> right, exactly. And that was something that Democrats brought up during this whole argument related to the debt ceiling process is that you have the House Budget Committee, the Senate Budget Committee, you have a ways and means committees. I mean, all of these committees have been already working on a lot of these spending levels. Now, obviously, the Republicans are happy about this because they ushered in a lot of things that they might not have been able to do through the committees, although House Speaker McCarthy has said he wants to return to regular order and get these committees to get their appropriations out in due time so that they come out by October 1st. 
All right, and the big question is, are we going to have to do this whole dance again two years from now? It seemed as if President Biden was trying to establish some sort of precedent of, you know, saying the White House shouldn't negotiate, but then ended up having to negotiate. Uh, So what's it going to look like in 2025? Right. I think we will likely end up in this same scenario, particularly if there is divided government. Now, of course, it depends on the presidential election in 2024, how things will shake out in the House and Senate as well. If President Biden were to be reelected and they're still divided, you can bet that Republicans will go right back to this playbook. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has indicated he would have no hesitation in doing so. After all, he got quite a bit out of this. They use this political leverage to make the changes we just talked about. Now, if a Republican is elected president and Democrats still control either the House or the Senate, it's going to be interesting to see if they support a clean debt ceiling approval bill, which they, of course, really called for all the way up until these negotiations had to start, or if they do something along the lines of what Republicans have done this year for their own priorities. I'll be really interested to see what happens there. Speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. And so let's get back to actual legislation then. Uh, Republicans are still trying to push the issue of not letting feds do as much work from home. What is the status on any bills going towards that cause? Right now, they're kind of stuck in committee, but it remains a major interest for the House Oversight Committee, Chairman James Comer and many other Republicans. They're really keeping a close eye on this, and they're trying to keep up the pressure on federal agencies to do more to get people back into the office. They're continuing to call for the agencies to get the feds back into work rather than at home. And this is going to be an ongoing issue moving forward. Uh, South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace even floated the idea of firing workers who don't come into the office in a recent interview with CBS News, if that type of effort were carried out, you can bet that unions representing federal workers would go to court. But it does reflect GOP frustration with the issue. And I guess we'll continue to hear about this topic in House hearings as they move forward. Yeah. And also, you mentioned the calls for the IRS to reduce their workforce that all sort of started online with many Republican supporters worried about agents coming to get you. That all started as you know sort of a meme. And now the latest one also is that the Energy Department is going to ban gas stoves. Um, and I guess Republicans are once again taking those causes seriously. What is on the agenda? Right. This is the proverbial hot topic in the culture wars, and it's really into uh, the Congress now. Two pieces of legislation are scheduled to come up this week related to gas stoves. One of them is called the Save Our Stoves Act, and that would prohibit the Secretary of Energy from finalizing or enforcing proposed rule changes related to energy standards. I was covering a hearing recently related to this, one of the subcommittees of the House Oversight Committee. And as you can imagine, this is one that stirs up a lot of heated opinions one way or another. Republicans really pushing this hard, saying that the government is coming after gas stoves, or at least effectively will be, because they say if they impose the standards through the Energy Department, that the number of gas stoves being sold, for example, would be dramatically reduced. Democrats, on the other hand, say this is being overblown and that the Republicans are going too far with it. But it is an issue that's actually uh, taking up some time in Congress. And there's another bill in connection with that called the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act. It would actually prohibit the use of federal funds to ban gas stoves. Now, the bottom line, of course, is nobody's going to show up at your door and cart away your gas stove. But 
it does show that there's this continuing tug of war between the two political parties related to some of these hot button issues. And so this will, again, get some more attention this week. And not to mention, this is bread and butter for anybody going for reelection. And, you know, this is something that obviously people can understand and grasp. Right. It's very, very straightforward. It's something that's in your home. It's part of your it's literally a kitchen table issue. And I think that's why a lot of Republicans have decided to press on this. I did notice as I was going through the language related to the proposals over the that are going to come up this week, that there's a facetious proposal on the Democratic side, basically saying that they would want to add an amendment called the Appliance Bill of Rights. So uh, you're going to see a little bit more headlines related to this, you know, and it may sound kind of tongue in cheek to a lot of people. But for a lot of people, this is a real issue about what the role of federal government is in connection with what happens with with your home every day. WTOP's Mitchell Miller, thank you so much. You bet. After five years of development and tens of millions of dollars in spending, the Defense Department has decided to throw in the towel on its My Travel program. That's the new system that was supposed to replace the 25-year-old defense travel system. DOD canceled the program without any explanation to its users. The Pentagon has now given us a couple of reasons for the sudden change, but as Federal News Network's Jared Serber reports, they don't completely clear things up. Jared joins us now to talk more about the story. Jared, how are you doing? Hey, Eric. Good. How are you? Pretty good. So what is going on here? (laughs) It's a a pretty weird story, to be honest. So we just we got wind of the fact that this my travel program was ending midway through last week. And and the memo from Gil Cisneros, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, had actually gone out about a week earlier and just kind of flown under the radar. As you said, DOD gave really no explanation for the shutdown to its users, nor to us when we first asked. It, It eventually took the department about 72 hours to give us any kind of explanation, which is a little weird in and of itself. But they did finally come back on Friday afternoon and gave us two reasons they said they were canceling this. They said, one, it's no longer in the best interest of the department because travel volume has declined because of COVID. And the second reason they gave us was that the department's priorities have, quote, shifted to focus on DOD financial improvement and readiness to achieve an unmodified audit opinion. So those are reasons. Um, I'm not sure I would classify them as good reasons. And I'll, I'll just give, you know, a little bit of explanation for why I sort of think that one there's not any clear evidence at all that travel volume has actually declined in the post-COVID era. era. According to the, the data that DOD submits to the Office of Management and Budget every year to track improper payments, DOD's total travel pay outlays in 2022 were the highest they had ever been since 2011. There was a huge bounce back in, in, in travel after COVID based on the figures that we can see. They had $8.4 billion in total travel pay outlays in 2022. 20 percent higher than in 2021, which was when they initially decided to award this contract, and 6% higher than 2018 when they first started on the on the prototype work. And then as to that second reason, also a little weird. They're saying that the, they're, they're canceling this because they need to shift their priorities to financial improvement so that they can get a clean audit opinion. The current system, the defense travel system, is something that officials have pointed to as an audit problem in and of itself. The Government Accountability Office found that between 2016 and 2018, that system all by itself was responsible for almost a billion dollars of improper payments, some of which the department can't say were overpayments or underpayments. They're just unknown. So that seems to me a pretty giant problem with auditability right there. 
And DOD said in its own 2021 financial statement that my travel was going to start to solve that problem. And now they're ending it. It's uh, it's these these two reasons are real head scratchers. The whole thing is, to be honest. So if they're head scratchers, do you have any sort of idea of maybe what they are planning here? Is it just maybe just to scrap the whole thing just because it is so messed up, so to speak? The only option they really have at this point, because this was the alternative to the defense travel system, is to move everybody back to the defense travel system. We have heard anecdotally that that system has gotten better over the last few years as some modernization work has gone on, but the underlying system has been around since 1998. Defense officials have said in the past that it is cumbersome, it is difficult to audit, it has poor um, a poor user experience. All of these were reasons why they started the My Travel program in the first place. But to answer your direct question, Eric, yeah, DTS is really the only alternative right now. They did explicitly say in a, in a message on the My Travel website that they are transitioning everybody back to DTS kind of forthwith and that more guidance would be um, forthcoming. But they're, 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 they got to move kind of urgently here. Any travel that's planned for after July 18th does need to be done back in um, back in DTS because they are shutting this entire My Travel system down by September 18th. The reason for that date is if they extended it beyond that, they would need to pay the prime contractor, SAP Concur, for another year's worth of licensing fees. And depending on how many users they have in the system, that's probably in the neighborhood of anywhere between 6 and $10 million uh, additional for, for that additional year. And you touched a little bit on them uh, just prior, but what about the users themselves? I mean, what are, are they going to be even more confused or are they going to have to just go back to the way things were? It's it's a little bit difficult to gauge the way folks feel about this. We've heard mixed messages on social media. Some people saying, you know, they're glad to be going back to DTS because it has actually gotten better over the past few years. And, and you know, some of the problems inherent with the system were fixed. It's a little hard to gauge how people were accepting of my travel because it had a relatively small user base so far. It was really only implemented in the defense agencies. And according to the budget DOD submitted just a couple months ago, the military services were all scheduled to move to my travel by um, the end of 2023. That's one reason this whole decision was a little bit surprising, by the way. And another reason it was a little bit surprising, more than a little bit surprising, was that just back in October, Gil Cisneros, the same official I mentioned earlier, had issued a memo to the entire department saying they were about to make my travel mandatory for everyone. So a very quick turn on this from mandatory to everyone to we're canceling the entire program. And let's take a second to think about our poor, poor communications officers. Did they uh, relay any sort of timeline for when they'll have more information to give everybody uh, on what the plan exactly is going forward? All we have heard uh, as far as the communication to users is that the organizations that are using my travel will receive, quote, further guidance in due course. As to communication between DOD and us, the media, we have asked for some additional clarification on, on how it can be that they're saying that travel volumes have decreased. I'm hoping to get some more clarification on that this week, but so far, all we have is just the, I would say, unsupported claim that travel volumes have gone down since COVID. And by the way, I, I, I must say that even if that were true, DOD is always going to have billions and billions of dollars worth of travel every single year. So it's not completely clear to me why, even if there were declining travel volumes, why you wouldn't want to have a modernized system to handle that. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu, I'm sure we'll get an update from you as soon as you have it. You bet. Thanks, Eric.